So um, thank you for watching that. Thank you for being out tonight. I wish I could give uh, everybody that's here a hug. Um, but uh, I think we're going to be recording. And, uh, so I have to be up here, but I will give everybody a hug as we leave tonight. Um, it's a very emotionally draining um, documentary, 35 minutes. Uh, I think it speaks to a lot of the difficulties that um, we are facing. And like we said, uh, we've been lucky enough to be uh, able to travel with this documentary to different small towns uh, in America for the past five years. Um, we've been able to show this to students, community, policymakers, uh, law enforcement, you name it, and uh, they've watched it. There's been coalitions that have been built uh, simply from this film and the response from. There's a lot of stuff that, um, in hindsight, people have admitted that they would have done differently. Um, so with, with that said, there's always this, with, with this film, it triggers back memories. And I was talking to Lee back there, and he was talking about how our ghosts and how our demons sometimes lie dormant until something triggers it. And that's this forgiveness process that we all engage in is, is just that, it's a process. And it's a process that we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're entitled to something that we deserve ourselves. Because if we don't, if we don't go through that process, what can happen is a person can hurt you and keep hurting you. Um, and in turn, you can keep hurting the people that you love the most in your life. Trust me, I have seen it. Um, I, I can't say everybody in our family is completely healed. Um, I can't say that I'm completely healed. But I think that I started that process, and process started the day of the shooting itself. This was the deadliest hate crime committed on U.S. soil in 50 years, in nearly 50 years, by an affiliated white supremacist. And the day of that Sunday, I was right outside, and uh, the fortunate uh, forget forgetfulness of my daughter allowed us to be a little bit late. But with that said, my mom, who was also inside the temple at the time, uh, she was safe across the street in the bowling alley, command post. Um, and and when, when I found her, she just basically told me, you know, you have one, one thing to do, make sure you find out the right. The news of that, of getting that news came, came about 10 o'clock that evening, so 12 hours later. Meanwhile, during that entire time, congregations that were getting out of their Sunday worship came to our side, came where the command post was also set up. And as they got out, they didn't do this, but they came together, and this was the first time that I've seen a response like this with my own eyes. I've seen Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, you name the, the, the religious affiliation. And it started off with 100 people there, 200 people there, 400 people there, 1,000 people there, media crew covering it. But all these people had one prayer. And they said it in their own different ways. But this incident brought them together. Now what I, ask, what I ask is that an incident like this doesn't need to happen for us to be brought together. We can be proactive. So as much as me and I don't love hugs, 
We all love bugs. I would ask for your commitment to action. There's ways to get involved in your community. And just like the mayor said, there's, there's ways that small communities can respond uh, that big communities can't because of bureaucracy. You have proactive community members who want to do this before it gets this bad. They see you, you see the tension rising. You can feel it. And you might not be able to explain it, but you know that it's there. So let's start addressing that. Um, I do want to answer your questions. Uh, you have been patient for eight weeks. Very tired guys. So if there's a question, um, go ahead and ask. Does anybody have any questions for them? Um, the reason why um, I thought it was important to bring um, Arno and Pardipa here out to this community is that every community um, and its surroundings has issues. We all know that. And it's people that are here that are saying we need to do more. And it's getting involved. Um, not necessarily everybody wants to protest, write a letter, make a call. Um, but some of the things that Pardeep and Arno always talk about is kindness. And sometimes it's hard to be kind to others. Um, but uh, my husband, who is a pastor and we work, and he works with me personally, um, to show that kindness, um, even as, as things have happened. Um, so first of all, I want to thank each and every one of you for being out here today, um, especially it's very, very cold and it's extremely cold in here too. So thank you guys for coming out. Um, it tells me that you guys want to learn more and it also tells me that there's work that needs to be done here. And so thank you all for coming out. Um, if anybody has any questions for Arno or Pardee, please, we'll bring the mic out. Um, my husband, why has the gun, gun violence not subsided despite efforts to build community to build community I, I think in the United States we have a pretty unique situation as far as um, the you're going to use that term, the developed world, first world, what have you. Uh, we have more guns in this country than people. There, there are over 300 million guns in the United States of America. It is logistically just not feasible for them all to disappear. There are all kinds of, of logistical, practical issues. None of that is an excuse for not taking action. I personally, I think that we need to take guns a lot more seriously in this country than we do. I was raised shooting guns. My dad is a certified gun nut, as is my brother. I've shot fired firearms since I was big enough to hold one. And throughout my life, my father, who was a big proponent of the Second Amendment, also made sure that I took guns very, very seriously. And I still do, and I don't think we do as a society. So that, that's where I think the conversation needs to begin. And it, it's very difficult to have conversations about the Second Amendment. It's difficult to have conversations about the First Amendment. It's difficult to have conversations about race, about gender. And that leads to what we've already been talking about, is that in order to have these difficult conversations, we have to create a space for those conversations to happen. And the way that I believe we can create that space is through the practice of kindness, the practice of compassion, the practice of forgiveness. If we don't start there, 
there's no possible way we're going to have any kind of constructive conversation about guns or any other devices topic. So that's why I think it's, it's not just important, it is vital, it's a prerequisite to cultivate those noble aspects of our humanity in order to address these issues. Because if we don't, all we're doing is just taking shots back and forth, drawing lines in the sand until they become chasms, and, and that, uh, that's why I believe uh, we haven't made progress. Very well said, thank you. Thank you, sir. The, uh, the film was excellent. Uh, it's very, very moving. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, what uh, what programs have, have been successful in communities such as Oakley, and in particular, I wanted to know whether you're getting uh, some school districts to develop uh, part of the curriculum uh, programs for tolerance and understanding. So, um, you know, Greek, I mean, this, this, before this, many people didn't even know who six were, uh, quite honestly. They, they, and I don't know how many people reached out and were like, we just went past the temple, we didn't know what, what, what you guys were about, we know what you believed in. And I think it starts there as far as like educating ourselves um, onto like who people are really just, just playing out education. Um, schools and teaching empathy, I think that's, that's the utmost importance right now. Um, teaching, teaching social skills, uh, you know, we're, we're teaching subjects still, and those subjects don't matter as much if we don't teach some of these caring skills. Um, so as far as like schools look, I think schools need a complete overhaul anyways. Um, moving forward, we're moving forward with about seven billion people on the face of this earth and, and counting. So if we're not if we're not practicing kindness, compassion, forgiveness, positive identity development, not only how are we gonna look to each other, but how are we gonna look to the environment? How how do we how do we you know look to, to the resources that we're taking advantage of moving forward? So I mean the, overall we we need a whole overall whole overall Overhaul. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, nice ring to it. Uh, as far as our Serve the United School program goes, we've been very fortunate to run this program in Milwaukee Public Schools and elsewhere around the nation, around the world, uh, since April of 2013. We've worked in uh, maybe 40, 50 schools since then with thousands upon thousands of students. The theme of Serve to Unite as far as our work within schools goes, and really our, our work across the board. We, we've also been organizing the 6K run that you saw a glimpse of in the movie. Uh, that's been a, a huge success every year. And recently, as, as party mentioned earlier, and, and as Mayor Scafidi mentioned in the film, we, we've been really trying to understand the value that small communities have to make changes uh, that, that bigger communities really have a problem doing. So Party and I, in addition to our work in schools, have been working with small towns, local governments, local interfaith organizations, uh, local private sector to help cultivate a, a strong, happy community where, where people understand that uh, practicing kindness is not only a good thing for everybody else, it's a good thing for you personally. And, and going back to schools, that, that's a big part of 
our message, and, and it's not only like what we teach, it's what we learn in schools. Party and I have learned as much from working with young people as they may have learned from us. And one of those most important things I've learned is really just, a lot of times we need to simplify things. I, I think as a society, as human beings, we have a bad habit of over-complicating the simple and simplifying the complicated. Like, uh, so, as far as, as like, what's the, the antidote to all these problems that our society goes, I believe that's a situation where we need to think simply, and that simplicity is, is that human beings, I think everybody in this room can agree, all we want is, is happiness. All we want is, is safety. All we want is to experience love in our lives. And if we start with happiness, and, and we look at, uh, Conwar is an amazing neuroscientist, he's got his PhD that you saw in the film, and Pardeep is, is a licensed therapist, a mental health professional. It, those two fields have come together to demonstrate recently that happiness is literally composed of kindness, forgiveness, and gratitude. The more of those three things you have in your life, the happier you will be. And those three things don't cost anything. You don't need a penny to have to, to be awash with those things every day of your life. So the more of us who can understand that and practice it, the more of us are going to be happy. And the beautiful part of that is those practicing forgiveness, kindness, and gratitude makes other people around you happy. And, and again, this is the foundation we need to create in order to address very acute issues like gun violence, like racism. So uh, when we work with young people, we cultivate those things via arts-driven service learning. Um, Sikhism is, like many great faiths, is, it, its core is about service to other human beings. And the arts are an amazing way for people to reach each other. That This movie that you guys just saw was a work of art, I believe, and, and it reached you all, I believe, also, as it did me. And uh, the third component of Circuit Unite, along with the arts and service learning, is global engagement. So we connect our young people with really amazing peacemakers from all over the planet, all of whom have stories every bit as amazing as, as minor parties, and all of whom do amazing work. So with those three areas, we guide young people as they guide us to, to practice the components that build happiness and success in our society. And the more people who are able to achieve happiness and success, the, the fewer problems we're going to have and the more well-positioned we are in order to address uh, contentious issues. My, my question is, um, you know, has to do with uh, how, to make, how to motivate people to uh, open their eyes Yeah. 
community nearby. Um, we're working, trying to work on issues of racism in our community, trying to raise awareness, trying to educate, trying to motivate the school district to do things, trying to motivate other institutions and communities to do things. And it's very challenging to get people to do anything other than like us on Facebook and show up at a few events. What, what's it going to take to move people? You said in some party that people have numbed themselves to see themselves to these kind of big events. I think people are numbing themselves also to the, the everyday suffering that's going on all around us. And, and it's not so much that we were, we're not really trying to reach the sort of um, the people that are spewing hate publicly, it's, it's the people that are quiet in the face of all the stuff that makes them around. And we are really trying to figure out how to motivate people, how to move people, how to touch people. And it's challenging. Um, so, anything exciting about there anymore? Yeah, um, definitely. You're right, and uh, you guys are you guys are incredibly insightful on a lot of these things already. So, um, how do we get people to be motivated to change? So, luckily, I, you know, I'm in behavioral health. And that's kind of my thing. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of times we say that you know it takes a lot of it takes tension, but but we don't want the tension to be so traumatic that somebody doesn't recover, because we're facing that as well. Being aware to the point that we're overwhelmed causes inaction as well. Joe talks about the system justification theory and he talks from the perspective of both liberals and conservatives each having their own way of looking at things but as they look at things they both become inactive from both lenses and so sometimes you look at the other side well they're, they're wrong and they're looking at the other side and they're wrong and we're defining ourselves Quite honestly, we're defining ourselves by what we're against. And whenever we do that, uh, think about it when we're trying to uh, knock out um, you know, diseases. If we define ourselves by the antibody that's going to wipe out those diseases, what happens? It becomes a Super Bowl. We define ourselves against the war on terror, well, then we create an ISIS. We define ourselves according to the war on drugs, well, we create an epidemic of uh, opioid use. So what I'm saying is that when we define ourselves by things that we're fighting against, we're automatically going to make them stronger. So what, what we're losing right now is, and why we're not motivating people, is because we're losing the war of ideas. Quite honestly, we see this, we see this and for us, what we got to do is just, you know, each one, reach one, teach one. And it's one by one. And that exponential growth is, 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 more, is, is more beneficial than, let's say, if we pack this, you know, if we pack it with thousands of people who weren't really involved. Right? I, think, I think the people that are here are the right people to be here. And, and this experience, um, this experience is, is, is because of all the people that were here, are here. So, you know, I, I, I do understand, like, yeah, that's, that's even like for us. Um, I look at it according to sort of the trend, trend like uh, the, uh, the, uh, called the model of change, trans theoretical model of change. And at first is you know obviously like resistance, and then getting people to buy in, but they need to see some glimmers of hope. And I think that your community has enough traction that like 
join in, join in on the resolution, join in on something that's going on with the school. Um, really start to see each other as, as human beings. And what, when I say that, I'm saying like sometimes we define ourselves by like what we're, when we define ourselves by what we're against, we're kind of like, you know, we'll ask our children, what do you want to do when you grow up? And they'll give us a career and say, well, I want to be, uh, you know, a neuroscientist. I want to be a, uh, an astronaut. I want to be a, you know, whatever. And, and, and then I want to do, I want to do, I want to do. And then we find ourselves not happy. That's because we're not defining ourselves by what we, what, you know, what, what, what we are, what we really truly are, and what we truly want to be. And, and, and be means like that, that human being part is missing. And being means like I want to be happy. I want to be kind. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be nurtured. And really, really plant, like starving the fuel. I think Arnold, you did a good job of talking about starving the fuel rather than feeding the feeding the fire. Yeah, it's, and I, first of all, I want to thank you and the people you're working with for caring. I, step one is caring. If nobody cares, then it's really difficult to get anybody activated. Obviously, all of you care to be here this evening, and again, we're super grateful for that. I think when we're talking about reaching as many people as we possibly can, what's to me really important is to think about what beacon are we using to reach them? So, lighthouses have been kind of antiquated by GPS and things like that now, but for thousands of years, before GPS, when ships were at sea or in a big giant lake, there were lighthouses on land, basically just some kind of big lamp, that would either tell a ship, like, stay away from here, or this is where you want to end up. And the brighter the lighthouse was, the farther away the ships could see it from, the more ships could orient to it, the more the light would show through fog and bad weather. So you want that lighthouse to be really bright and you want every ship to be able to see it. What's happening in our society now, and I think this has always happened, but it's amplified down by social media and other ways to silo what we're thinking, is that from my perspective, maybe from my political beliefs, I find what I think is a great lighthouse. I think everybody needs to orient to this lighthouse. And I start building it up and I start yelling, here's the lighthouse, everybody look to it, everybody go to it. But because that lighthouse is built out of my subjective political opinions, people who don't share those opinions can't see the lighthouse. So there's no way that they're going to orient according to what I'm trying to get them to do. What I found very effective in reaching people across the political spectrum, across ethnicities, across religion, nationalities, are these like core components of what is, makes our human experience an amazing thing. Compassion, just bearing witness to people's suffering and doing it without judgment. That reaches people of every political persuasion. I've been doing this for eight years and I've had Republicans support me, I've had Democrats support me, and to me that's a measure of success. I, I'm, personally, I'm pretty progressive politically, I'm probably like moderate center-left kind of person, but um, I, anytime I start cutting myself off from other people because of their political beliefs, I, that's on me. 
I need to adjust my lighthouse at that point and ask myself who's going to be able to see it if, if I don't put it somewhere that everyone can see it and make it shine a light of compassion, of authenticity that, that reaches people no matter who they are or where they might be from. Party and I do prevention of violent extremism through our Serbian Night program, through our talks, through our books. We also do intervention, where we've actually worked with people who are members of hate groups and help them leave. In 2016, I spent most of the year working with a gentleman, helping him leave the Ku Klux Klan. And the way I reached him was simply not reflecting his aggression. When I first met this guy, he was just radiating hostility and throwing out racial slurs, which really, really make me angry. Uh, I, I used to spout racial slurs myself, but that was 20 years ago, and nowadays when I hear those kind of words, it dehumanizes people that I love, and it makes me very angry. And I, for a long time, I was someone who put a fist through anything they were angry at. And when this guy is like spouting all these racial slurs toward me, it took all I had not to knock his teeth up and beat him to a bloody mess. That certainly crossed my mind. But taking a breath, I came to understand that doing so, while you know, on Facebook I might have got a lot of applause, it's not going to make him any less hateful or violent. And it's not going to make anybody who thinks like him any more liable to listen to what I have to say. So instead of knocking his teeth out, I kept telling him that I was there because I cared about him. And I wanted to help him make some changes in his life that his wife felt he needed to make for the sake of their family, for the sake of their marriage. And I'm here to help him. Later on, he told me that the inner peace I demonstrated for him was palpable. Like, he could feel that. And he was trying to hurt me. He was trying to provoke me with everything he had. And because he couldn't, that's ultimately what, even though he went walking out of that exchange in a huff, later on he said it was at that moment that he's like, I gotta listen to this guy because he has something that I need to learn. So authentic presence, being, being genuine, genuinely caring about other people and caring about everybody, not just caring about people you're sympathetic to and showing your heart to people that you find distasteful. We need to challenge ourselves to truly practice compassion. Compassion is unconditional by nature. So to say unconditional compassion is a redundant statement. If we are sympathetic to people that we like, but we're not sympathetic to people we don't like, that's not compassion, it's passion, and it's actually a, a root of violence. So modeling the being the change you want to see is, is an amazing thought by Gandhi that is very applicable today. Embody that change and, and be the, the good neighbor, be the good person, and, and especially when, when it's people who don't agree with you. People who, who you may feel are your, your biggest enemies can also be your greatest teacher, and when you open yourself to them, that's what has the most capacity to change them and to motivate them to transform into someone who is ready to get behind your cause 100%. Aforementioned uh, guy who got out of the Klan today is, is very committed to help other people get out of the Klan. And that's because 
I demonstrated what inner peace looked like for him, and, and now he understands that in order to do that, he has to set aside his fear, he has to set aside his ignorance, and, and now he's inspired to be something better. It's a personal question directly to you that I know maybe you could watch to address the larger um, So my understanding is that 20 years ago, you weren't too unlike the guy that walked into that apple in the dead So the first part of my question is if you could shed this light on, on, on what that's like. In other words, what the hell were you thinking? Right. And then, what happened? What, what, what was saying your evolution? Why? How would that come about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know what you said about the regular people. I don't see a single skin that knocks into the audience. And that's, I think, the real shortcoming of these programs. And I'm wondering if this room was filled with skin that knocks like that man and the kid that you were from years ago. What would you say? And with the things that went on that provoked your evolution, how do you use that thought that you already gave one Sure. <coughs> Excuse me. The, the first thing I say, and, and what I did start out with my clan buddy rather than beating him up, was that I lived that life. I, I was in the movement for seven years. Every talking point he has, every, oh, yeah, but this, yeah, but the Jews this, the blacks this, the gays this, yada, yada, yada. I, I know that all inside and out. I, I not only lived and breathed it for seven years, I preached it. And better than most people today can. So I, I've lived my life that way. They haven't lived the life that I lead today. The life I lead today is something I am grateful for every single day. And it's because of amazing people like Party. Because I have opened myself up and allowed them into my life to touch my heart, that's the reason why I am grateful every day for life nowadays. Instead of living in terror. And, and that's what that ideology is. It, it's, it's a self-imposed hell that Basically, every waking moment, you are terrified of every other human being on Earth. You are terrified of anyone who isn't white. You are terrified of white people who aren't violent white racists in your gang, because they're traitors, which, which actually are higher on the list of unimportant people than black people or Jews or anybody else. And you're also terrified of the guys in your gang because they're as miserable and suffering as you are. They're as liable to turn on you as anybody else is. So there, there's no safe place on earth. And, and, and it's entirely self-imposed. There's little shreds of, of truth in that little factoids that are taken in and spun to, to whip yourself into this frenzy of terror of all life on earth, of everything around you. It, and, and what happens when you practice things, the reason why practice shapes human life and shapes our abilities is because practice brings about familiarity. So the reason why Aaron Rodgers can throw a football the way he does when he's healthy is because he's thrown thousands and thousands and thousands of footballs. That's, that's completely sec second nature to him. 
If he threw the football once a year, he wouldn't be very good at it. When you practice hate and violence, you become familiar with those things. And that familiarity not only makes you unfamiliar with love and compassion and kindness, all these things that we keep coming back to, it makes you repulsed by them. It, kindness makes you uncomfortable. There, there were times during my days of the movement, and, and speaking of how I got out, there were, I was very lucky that numerous times in that seven year span, there were people that I claimed to hate who refused to be subject to my hostility and instead treated me with kindness. And every time that happened, it royally messed me up. That there were honestly times where I ran, like ran away from a, a nice little black lady at McDonald's who said I was a better person than what I was doing. Like I, I ran. That's how uncomfortable it made me. And I, I wished I could like extract that singularity of humanity from my experience, but the, the human psyche doesn't work like that. It, our psyches don't work in terms of subtraction. Once something happens to us, it is part of our experience from that day forward. You can't erase it, you can't extract it, it's always there. And I spend so much energy trying to deny these personal face-to-face -face experiences I had that indicated everything I was trying to believe was nonsense that I became so exhausted I was looking for an excuse to leave after seven years. I, I also tried to kill myself twice during that seven year span. The second time, an almost successful time, was a week after my daughter was born. I just about took my left hand off with an, an EK combat dagger, which is a knife about that long with a blade like that that you can shave with. And I just about took my left hand off because I came home wasted, covered in somebody else's blood, and my girlfriend was letting me have it, tell me what a horrible father I was. I, those suicide attempts weren't just from like things happening on the spot. It was because I, I was that miserable. And if we're talking about Wade Page, one of the reasons Party initially reached out to me was to say, why? How could somebody do this? What would bring someone to the point where they would commit this kind of violence? I believe that Wade Page was so miserable after practicing hate and violence for a, over a decade that nothing but homicide followed by suicide seemed to make sense to him. I also believe wholeheartedly that had the right act of kindness occur at the right time, that entire atrocity could have been diverted. Page was in his early 40s. He had a menial minimum wage factory job, zero, no career in the middle of his life. He had a brief rocky relationship with a girlfriend and when he proposed to her, she turned him down and dumped him. His family had disowned him. Everything in his life was going wrong, and rather than sit back and take a breath and say, hey, what can I do to make myself a better person, he continued to blame Jews, he continued to blame blacks, he continued to blame gay people, brown people with turbans and beards, it was everybody else's fault but his. And when we dwell on blame like that in any sort of situation, we essentially throw out our ability to really change the situation, and that's what he did. And that's what made him so miserable. So to reiterate, living in that mindset is it's a nightmare. 
And yeah, there's very slick people out there now. Richard Spencer, this little you know pretty boy media darling, he looks very flippant and like, oh, he's just the happiest guy on earth. I I don't believe that for a minute. I think that dude is is seriously miserable. And every time I go to the east side of Milwaukee, or I'm in New York City, or I'm in Chicago, or I'm in LA, like all these places that I love because they're so diverse. New York does it every time, and I'm there about once a month. I'll walk down the street in New York City and hear five different languages within the span of a block and see stores and restaurants of like every ethnicity and see every kind of person and some people I've never seen before in my life. And, and I'm loving it. Like, I'm like gleeful about it. I'm, I'm just like, this place is awesome. I love this place. I'm having the best time ever. Just being amongst this, this incredible, beautiful diversity of humanity. People like Wade Page, people like Richard Spencer, like they stop themselves from experiencing that joy with the nonsense that they've convinced themselves of. And, and the, the, only, <laughs> the only person holding them back is them. So that, that's, that's the point I would make, is like, hey dude, come live my way for a little bit, and, and after you walk both paths, if you truly want to go back to where you were, be my guest. I don't, I've never seen anybody do it. And everybody I've seen left, left the movement has immediately felt like a huge weight is off their shoulders, and, and with the proper support, can not only become good productive citizens, but activists for peace and activists for diversity. Just real quick, the last part of that question, um, what would we do if there were all these white supremacists in here and they were sitting down? We, we would do the same thing. Um, the message wouldn't change for, for anybody. And I think what we need to understand is that the, the, the human journey like, is that in each of us, in each of us, including us, including every man, woman, and child, there is good and there is bad. There's parts of racism that exist within all of us. And, and I mean, some of the stuff that we're talking about, this is, I mean, this is a horrible incident that happened with a known affiliated white supremacist, right? But how many incidents are happening all over America that, that might not be deemed as like that, you know, that tragic? but are, are, are still affecting the, the, the psychological makeup of somebody else that's really feeling like, you know, some of the greatest messages that I got after, afterwards was like, yeah, we never knew who your people, like, who your people were, but my daughter goes to daycare, and there's some, there's some people who look foreign, and we want to invite them to, um, and, and people are just quite honestly just, you know, you get these messages, and they're like a, par a couple paragraphs long, and everybody's free to Facebook us, and, and, and you know, talk and have conversations. We're not that hard to reach. Um, but some of the most genuine posts would be like, I, I have a child and I never really thought about inviting the foreign kid to a birthday party that my child was having. From now on, I'm gonna make sure that I do that. And if we can go ahead with just those small little things, that's something that we all can do. We can all take a look around and kind of just be a little bit more tuned and aware to what, what we're doing is affecting the psyche of somebody else, making them, making them feel some type of way or making us feel that, that same way. So the message, I mean, the message wouldn't, wouldn't change. It would, it would be the same. So uh, something you guys said before we came on to the campus, and there's been a lot of talk uh, about your parts in the movie about the importance of kindness, passion, forgiveness, 
we can even define forgiveness as an act of vengeance. Uh, so I was curious about that, and I looked up vengeance, and the definition is uh, punishment inflicted in retaliation for an injury or offense. Um, I looked up compassion, and it defines compassion as sympathetic consciousness of others distressed together with a desire to alleviate that. And I'm just curious, you know, how you reconcile those two definitions. Um, you know, does that definition of forgiveness not perpetuate the cycle, or do you have a different definition of vengeance? Yeah, I think for me, so the, the vengeance was what? Just read the one for vengeance again. What was the vengeance definition? What is that, right? Punishment. Exactly. So, so punishment, being being out from a word on that one. Vengeance on this person and what he tried to cause becomes punishment for him because we know what he was motivated by. What was he motivated by? He was motivated by hate. And when a person is hateful, when he was hateful, I'll speak for him in, in just particular because we kind of know his back, back, uh, his, uh, his backstory. He wanted to create a racial holy war. He wanted to incite a racial holy war. He wanted that a, a community uh, that didn't really have a voice would would not want would feel victimized. Our punishment to him said, you know what? And I'm not going to say a bad word like where I'm lying, but after you. We're not going to feel victimized. In fact, because you tried to close us off, we're going to start, we're going to open ourselves up. And this community that would have been just fine hanging out and, and really just talking, walking, and praying with each other is now going to go and help and serve other communities. We're not going to go back to our country. We're going to we're going to show you what we're worth. And and that became for him. And I mean, whoever like has that line of thinking, that's punishment. Um, you know, I started I started talking about my uh, brother-in-law who had the childhood. The child will grow up, and the child will be loved, nurtured, cared for. Um, that will be vengeance. So I, I think you know you can define it in different ways, and it's never to be like too too literal. But what what I get worried about is that when somebody defines forgiveness as weakness because they get triggered by the word forgiveness. Now, if that's happening and we define forgiveness as weakness, we're going to have a society that's going to be held bent on violence. And that's the part that's scary, is that when too many people are triggered by forgiveness, my work that I work with, um, I work with men escaping the cycle of violence. Arnold talked a little bit about that. We need to have them engage in their own process of forgiveness, not, not just for like what they're doing, but what they've done to themselves. Sometimes they're holding on. And, and I mean, the, the vengeful part becomes forgiveness, and then forgiving is for living. That makes sense? Forgiving is for living. If you if you don't forgive, you'll you'll I mean what another difficulty that we're facing right now is we have a lot of people who are wounded healers, wounded helpers. 
they want to help because they've been hurt themselves. And so they get out of society and they start to help. They, they, they haven't done their own work. I realized once I started going down my process is I had to be really genuine with that. If, if I, if I and, and we said before, like, as, as, it, as it happened, right away we had to respond. We didn't have any choice. We just had to, like, that video that you guys saw, that was literally just cameras being stuck in your face. This documentary crew did, did an amazing job, but at the same time, I had to really be like, do I forgive this person, or am I just taking it? If I saw him right here, would I, would I want to hurt him, or I want to kill him? And then, and then really being honest with myself. So yeah, great, great question. I, one of the reasons it's party when I get along so well is we both really like to piss people off still. And we piss each other off quite a bit too, so don't feel bad about that. Uh, when we, in Serbia night every year at the end of the school year, we have an all SUU peace summit, which some people in the audience have been to. And um, it's an amazing thing, usually anywhere from 400 to 600 kids. Uh, our first year we did it was at the Turner Hall Ballroom. We had 400 students, amazing day of like collaborative art projects and kids from second grade through college were all like comparing notes on their service learning projects they've been working on all year. They're meeting each other and they're like, hey, we're all Serve Unite, we're all wearing our Serve Unite t-shirts. It's like a really cool kind of pep rally for peace. The pinnacle of it was at the end, we had our students from Esquilla Fratney who were second and third graders. And they were up on stage like this, and the audience was 400 other students all the way up through college, middle school, high school. And our Fratney kids were like, if you know what's called Fratney, this is like diversity in action. It is one of the most diverse schools in Milwaukee. It's a really beautiful thing. And this group of young kids we had from second and third grade was a Hollywood casting agent could not have handpicked a more diverse group of little kids. We have this beautiful like, spectrum of complexions and ethnicities, backgrounds. And the kids got up on stage and they sang a song of peace called Shalom, where the, the verse is in Hebrew and the chorus is in Arabic. And the song is basically about setting our differences aside, living together in peace. And it's pretty easy to sing. We handed out lyrics to everybody and sing it in a round. And before too long, the second and third graders had the entire room of all these kids singing the song together. And then it kind of got a life of its own. And it was like at the end of the day, it's like, okay, the buses are here, we're gonna go. We had to like literally pull the plug on this song happening. But as the song was happening, I'm watching this happen, and I'm thinking to myself, this is a white supremacist's worst nightmare. This is vengeance. We are bringing young people together to see the humanity in one another, to love each other, to work side by side, to solve our problems in society, to not fear each other. That, that is punishment to a white supremacist. Interestingly enough, it's also punishment to the so-called Islamic State. It's, it's punishment to a political extremist from either side. That, that defying all of the fear that they're trying to cultivate is a punishment. 
And, and to me, I, I think that's a, a very valid definition of vengeance. I, I really appreciate that question, though, because it's, it's, it's very thoughtful, and, and uh, we're going we're gonna to carry that with us. about it, I talk about it, I look back at my childhood and I go, well, what, what was the problem? Like, where did, where did I go wrong? I, on paper, like, had a pretty idyllic childhood. I grew up in Mequon. Um, by Mequon standards, my family was pretty broke. My, my friends were all rich kids, but I, by world standards, I, we were incredibly wealthy. Uh, I never went hungry, never took a beating, they had a nice house, nice neighborhood. My parents were together, they both loved me very much. Uh, they let me know that all the time. But I grew up in an alcoholic household. And the, the alcoholism caused my parents to suffer. That caused me to suffer as a kid. And we do workshops on this topic all the time. Hurt people, hurt people. It, it's, it's never an excuse, but it's, it's a reason. That's where all violence comes from. It comes from suffering. And even though I had in a childhood that literally billions of children would have happily traded childhoods with me, the suffering I was going through didn't hurt any less. There wasn't any less poignant because of what other people may or may not have been going through. So I started lashing out at other kids at a very early age. I was a bully on the school bus as early as kindergarten. I got a kick out of that. I, like I said, I like to piss people off from like day one. And I, I developed a habit for causing trouble. I, I got stimulation from that. That was like my drug. And like any other kind of substance abuse, what gets you off that first time, 10 times later, is, doesn't do anything. So you gotta keep escalating it to get the same kind of rush. So as I grew older, I started getting in fights on the playground, I started getting in fights in the street, got involved in vandalism, breaking and entering, and stealing things. When I was 14 years old, I started drinking myself. The first time I drank, I drank till I passed out, and I drank like that for another 20 years. And by the time I was 16, I was very familiar with violence. I had been violent since I was a little kid. I convinced myself I like to fight and I like to get hit and I like to hit people. I, I liked the fact that people were afraid of me and not just other kids, but teachers and adults were afraid of me. And I really believe that every single human being on earth who was ever a teenager, ever, like has had at least one moment in their life when a parent or a teacher says, you know, you can't do this and you're like, Oh, I hate you. And fortunately for most people, that just like happens and it passes. And sometimes it's never even mobilized. But for me, that was just another part of the rush. So I was like, oh, I hate you. And I hate the teachers. And I hate the school. And I hate Mequon. I hate cops. And I hate the government. I hate, just hate, 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 hate. It was, it was all just more adrenaline for me. That's when I, when I was 16, I heard white power skinhead music that told me the reason why I was feeling all this hate was because my people were under attack 
because of this evil Jewish conspiracy to wipe out the white race that's been going on for thousands of years and every ball the non-white people were part of it and, and I was I had to fight for my people otherwise we'd be wiped out we'd be exterminated it was a very drastic very melodramatic and urgent and for a, a kid as I vocalize that now it sounds as ridiculous as it sounds to you it's it's obscenely stupid but for a 16 year old alcoholic hate and violence junkie it, it was literally music to my ears plus it really pissed people off that that was probably the biggest attraction to it to me was that people were repulsed by swastika and so that's how i got involved was for kicks for thrills and, and once you start radiating hate and violence into the world, the world tends to reflect it back to you, oftentimes in multiples. So within six months of starting this gang, my best friend went to prison for shooting some kid that came into a drive on our house. Within two years, another best friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight. And just like the hell that Wayne Page found himself in, rather than take those bad things happening as wake-up calls, we spun them to suit our narratives. We, he went to prison because the cops are controlled by the Jews. My friend was murdered because these savages are running on the streets killing white people all the time. We, we spun those things to suit our narratives and that drove me further and further into the movement. Uh, there's a real like weird echo I'm getting from the mic, but I'm gonna repeat the question, tell me if I'm right or wrong. If you're, you're asking about the current political climate and how hate is now kind of acceptable and mainstream, and what do we do about it? Is that a good paraphrase? Thank you. Uh, my hearing's also shut, I'm screaming on fans and going to rave parties for many years. Uh, I, I would agree with you. Uh, in, in the late 1980s, when I had my white supremacist group going, when we waved guns around and talked about watering the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants, uh, there was federal grand juries and RICO laws slapped on us and people went to prison. Nowadays when people do that, they get a guest spot on Fox News. Um, things have certainly changed. And it, it is definitely, the, this idea of you know, defying political correctness is, is very much like the same, like, oh, that really pisses people off. I like, I like to piss people off. It, it was, it's what a swastika was to me back then, is, is people going around and like shouting Merry Christmas to people today. And it, it, it's like, you're, you're, you're expressing some kind of hurt that you're going through, is the way that I look at it. Um, and, and so first and foremost, we can't let people who are doing that uh, accomplish their objective of making us hate them. Because then, then we're screwed. Then we got nowhere to go from there. To me, I, I, what I think is most important in today's political climate is to demonstrate that all of the fear that, that politicians who cultivate fear depend on, demonstrate that that fear is unfounded. That that's the best way to take the air out of those sails. Is to say, I, and I do it all the time. I, I work with amazing Muslim people from all over the world who have learned so much from, and many of whom risk their lives as we speak to keep us safe from violent extremism. And this idea that like all Muslims are terrorists and that we need to be afraid of Muslims um, is it's just completely unfounded. So let's find ways to demonstrate how unfounded it is. 
served Unite last year, uh, partnered with the Muslim community of Milwaukee, and we organized a food and clothing drive for homeless veterans. And among a number of mosques in Milwaukee over a period of a couple of months, they gathered so much food and clothing and sanitary items for homeless veterans that it took me and party, uh, six of our students, four people from the mosque, uh, two parents and one guy from Veterans Outreach Wisconsin, it took us all about 20 minutes to load it onto a truck. Those actions speak so much louder than any kind of words ever do. So when somebody's like, yeah, all Muslims are terrorists and they hate America. All right, I'm happy to talk to you about that right after I get back from the mosque to pick up the two tons of food that they gathered for homeless veterans. What, oh, by the way, what have you gathered for homeless veterans? Oh, I see. Maybe you should follow the example of the mosque. It, 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 that service is such a powerful action to take, and I think the more of us who take that action of service, find causes that everybody can get behind, and then come together and work to, to help those causes, that's the greatest blow we can deal to this kind of critical mass of fear that's going on. We want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. I know it's very cold. We want to be respectful for your time. Um, we want to thank our speakers, Arno Michaelis and Pardeen Kalika, for being out here. Um, they do have a book in the back for sale, of those that would like to purchase. They also have a new book coming out that will be, what, when does it come out? April. Uh, the new book is called The Gift of Our Wounds. Thank you. Uh, the new book's called The Gift of Our Wounds. You can find a pre-order page at giftofourwounds.com. The book will be in bookstores April 10th of 2018. It's available for pre-order now. And anybody who's unfortunate enough to be a Facebook friend of ours has been barraged with this left and right. Um, in, in all frankness, we want to we sell a billion of those books. Because every time that book gets bought, every time that book gets read, Pardeep's father lives on in that book. The, Gamal and Harpreet's mom lives on in that book. And, and we believe that this book can help our society heal. And that's why we're very actively promoting it. So I, I encourage you all to visit giftofourwounds.com, uh, pre-order the book if you're available, share it on social media, that's a huge help to us. The book that we have here today is my first book called My Life After Hate, which I self-published in 2010. And those are on sale for $20, and all the proceeds go to Serve to Unite. Um, so I want to thank everybody for, for coming out tonight. Um, I'm freezing up here. All of us are. I don't know. But, uh, you know, you guys braved the weather and, and came out tonight. Uh, you know, each one, reach one, teach one, and, and, you know, just get it out there. I think for, for our, the long-term uh, sort of problem and issue that we're going to face, and I hate to say problem because we don't want to be defined by the problems. We want to be defined by what we, what we fight for. Um, but it, it is going to be demographic change. No matter what community we go to, it's always the front, like, how do we address demographic shift? How do we address our neighborhood? How do we address some of the tension around it? So with that said, you know, keep, keep uh, gathering, keep developing coalitions to be more preventative. And, and thank you, God bless. Thank you all very much. Um, if, you, if anybody wants to take pictures, they will step down and they have their book. Arno will um, sign some books. Sure, I'm going to sign a book if you like. So thank you all for coming out. We appreciate it. And we will continue our community talks and we will have them back again. Thank you all.